You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to make your way to the gospel according to Luke chapter 7. Our text for this morning will be verses 11 through 17. The gospel according to Luke, verses 11 through 17. If you're a guest with us, let me just echo what was said at the beginning of the service. We're so glad you're here this morning. Um, I hope you get a chance to fill out our Connect card. We would love to just make contact with you, get to know you better. And we've been making our way through the, the gospel according to Luke in this series we've entitled From the Manger to the Throne. Luke chapter 7, I want to begin reading in verses 11 through 17 in church. This is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Soon afterward, he being Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea, in the surrounding country. Let us now pray the Lord would meet us to the preaching of his word. Father, how kind of you to give us your word, to reveal yourself to us through your word. We pray now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will have eyes to see, ears to hear, minds that comprehend, and Lord, would you transform us through the preaching of your word. We pray this for the glory of your name, for the good of your saints, and for the sake of the lost among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here at LifeGate for long, you've probably heard us talk about the late theologian, author, and preacher, R.C. Sproul. That's probably not a name that you are unfamiliar with if you've been here long. Maybe you've even had the opportunity over the years to sit in one of our adult Sunday school classes where we watched one of the video series featuring Dr. Sproul. Throughout his lifetime, Dr. R.C. Sproul had the opportunity to train young preachers on the fundamentals of preaching. And his most notable piece of counsel that he would always give to prospective preachers that I have remembered and it has served me 
over the years is, this is what he would always say, find the drama in the text and preach the drama. Find the drama in the text and preach the drama. Well, this morning, that will not be hard to do. Because Luke chapter 11, or Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17, is dripping with drama. This is an emotional passage that is meant to affect us, not just inform us. This passage is meant to affect our hearts this morning. As you know, this passage began with the heart-wrenching story of grief that, that many encountered at this, as this funeral procession made its way out of the city gates of Nain. But by the time we reach the end of this story, did you know the, notice the great reversal? The story ends with the streets of Nain erupting with echoes of glory. This passage begins with grief. It ends with glory. And it's worth noting that the miracle Jesus performed, as we're told at the very end, caused his fame to spread from the gates of Nain to the surrounding country. And beginning in verse 11, Luke sets the stage for this unfolding drama, and he does so with such mastery and with such artistry. Look again at verse 11 as Luke sets up the story. He begins by saying, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Pay careful attention to that opening phrase, soon afterward. That, that prefatory statement not only provides chronological context, obviously this story that we're reading took place after last week's story, but this, this, this little phrase, soon afterward, is doing more than just providing chronological context. It, it is providing literary continuity. And here's what I mean. Luke appears to be pairing this story, verses 11 through 17, with the story from last week, verses 1 through 10, of the centurion. Luke, Luke does this all throughout his gospel where he puts stories in pairs, and this appears to be one of those times where Luke is pairing these stories together. Let me just give you a few examples of how he's doing this. In the story we reflected on last week, if you recall, Jesus healed a man on the brink of death. Today, he brings back a man who's already died. So do you see the escalation? Jesus has the power to keep someone from dying, and he has the ability to bring back someone who has died to life. There's escalation in this story. And in both stories, last week and this week, Jesus performed his healing miracle towards those who were in need of healing, not because of their plight. It doesn't say he had compassion on the, on the servant of the centurion. It doesn't say he had compassion on the son. In both stories, he heals in response to the one who cares about them greatly. Do you remember last week, Jesus hears about this centurion who had a servant he cared about greatly. And today here, he encounters this grieving 
mother and widow. And notice that his heart goes out to her. So that's one of the ways Luke is pairing these stories together. Now look back at verse 11. After we saw how he begins with this comment soon afterward, then Luke informs us that after leaving Capernaum, that Jesus and his disciples, this is an important detail, along with a large crowd went to the town of Nain. And look what happened when they arrived at the entrance of this town. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, before I draw attention to the description Luke gives us of the man who had died or to his grieving mother, let me first draw attention to the crowd of mourners from the town who are part of this funeral procession. We must not miss them. At the end of verse 12, we're told a large crowd has joined this funeral procession. Procession. Do you, do you see the drama unfolding in this story? At the same moment that Jesus and his disciples and this large crowd are making their way to the gate of the town, guess what just happens to be taking place? Here comes this grieving mom with this large funeral procession, and they meet. There is much drama. Here And imagine, imagine the level of grief present at that moment. We're told that this mother has lost her only son. Being that she was a widow, she was not only feeling grief-stricken at that moment, she was probably anxious about how she was going to provide for herself because in that ancient Near Eastern context, a woman left without a husband or sons would have felt the, 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 the concerns of financial provision. And because of the custom of that day, that required that the family bury someone immediately outside of the gate of the city once they died. Here's what we can assume. This young man had just died. He had died within that day. So the grief of his passing must have been fresh and it was observable. So here comes Jesus, his disciples, and this large crowd. They'd just seen and heard about this healing of the centurion. And they arrived at the gate of this town. And here comes this funeral procession. And the weeping and the mourning and the wailing must have been loud and uncomfortable. See, Let's, let's, let's try to get ourselves in that frame of mind. I know we live in a culture where we have the privilege of doing things different when people die. But let us not forget that there was no nicely lit funeral home to take this son to. There was no memory videos they were going to watch together and laugh and cry. There was no makeup on the corpse that took away some of the signs of lifelessness. 
There was just the harsh reality of death and it was weighing down on them all. But little did they know what sweet gift of providence awaited them that day. (laughs) Here they are, filled with grief, filled with sorrow. And as they make their way out of the town to bury this son of this grieving mother, here comes Jesus. In verse 13, we're told what happens when he is aware of the situation. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He said to her, do not weep. We're told that when Jesus saw this grieving mother who had lost her only son and who had already buried her husband, he was deeply moved. When he saw her, he was deeply moved and he showed her great Compassion. And did you notice that Jesus did not respond to the mother because of her faith, like the centurion? That's where this story is different. There's many similarities between last week and this week. But it doesn't say, and he saw her great faith. No, he responded to her out of his compassion. He didn't wait for her to plead for his help. He immediately came to her Aid and notice the first thing he does. He tells her, do not weep. Now think about that statement. Do not weep. Those words seem cruel, not compassionate, if Jesus can't do anything to restore her son. If he can't assuage, the only way he can assuage her grief is to give her back her son. So just saying, do not weep, doesn't seem compassionate. I mean, think about this. Who who here would go to, to the hospital of a family member or a friend, and let's say that there was a mom there who had just received the tragic news she had lost her son in a sudden accident. Who here would go up to her and say, hey, don't cry? None of us would. And yet Jesus says, do not Weep. Why? Why did he do that? Because what happens next? Verse 14. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Luke informs us That immediately after telling this grieving mother not to weep, Jesus walked up to the men who were carrying what what could be in our day seen as a makeshift stretcher. This isn't a full coffin. A makeshift stretcher. Jesus places his hands not on the stretcher, but on the dead man. He touches him. And by touching this man, which Jesus didn't have to do, He was demonstrating his unique identity. How so? Well, if you recall, according to the law of Moses, to touch a dead corpse made you unclean. But not so with Jesus. 
If you recall back to the story that we read about in chapter 5 of, of the man that, that had leprosy, and Jesus didn't just say, you're clean. You remember what Jesus did? He touched him, which should have made him ceremonially unclean. And yet, Jesus wasn't defiled. If anything, the opposite happened. Jesus didn't become unclean. That man became clean. And here in this story, Jesus does not become unclean by touching this dead man because he's the essence of purity and he's the giver of life. But notice, Jesus does more than simply touch him. He spoke to him. And listen to what he said. Young man, I say to you, arise. And then Luke tells us, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. It brought me to tears this week when I read and reflected on the last part of verse 15 when it said not only that the young man sat up, he spoke, it's clear that he was alive, but Luke inserts this little phrase and he gave him to his mother. What a reunion that must have been. What a union that must have been. And it brought me to tears, not just to think about how happy she must have been. But I thought of many of you in this room. There's probably many ways we could apply this, but my mind and my heart was immediately made aware of so many in this room, parents who have children or grandparents who have grandchildren who are spiritually dead. And you grieve that they are separated from the Lord. And I hope of many things this message does this morning, one of my prayers is that this message will stir faith in every parent who longs to see their children or their grandchildren saved. If that's you, can I just encourage you in this? Do not grow weary in praying for the Lord Jesus Christ to bring life to the spiritually dead. I love these words from Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was a long time ago the Bishop of Liverpool, and he said these words, Let us pray for our children, and I added, and our grandchildren. Let us pray for our children and our grandchildren, and faint not. Our young men and young women may long seem traveling on the way to ruin, but let us pray on. Who can tell? But he that met the funeral in the gates of Nain may yet meet our unconverted children and say with almighty power, young man or young woman, arise. And he says, with Christ, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with Christ. He can bring life. To the dead. Now, before moving on to the response of the crowd, there, there's one more thing I, I hope to, for us to see, and, and, I, and I pray that this helps as we reflect on Jesus' response to this grieving mother. One more truth I think it'd be good for us just to linger on for a moment, and it's this. This story teaches us that sometimes we experience the glory of Jesus in the darkest places. 
Sometimes we experience the glory of Jesus in the darkest places. Listen, a misapplication of this text would be to believe that if Jesus is all-powerful, if he's, if he's compassionate, He will always heal the people we love and He will spare us from the grief of, and the sorrow of this fallen world. That is a misapplication of this text. And we all know that for a fact because we've all lost people. We've prayed for God to heal. So what this story demonstrates to us is not that we will never experience the sorrows of this fallen world, that we will never experience death of those that we love. What this story teaches us is that Jesus is moved by our pain and He moves towards us in our pain and He's eager to reveal His glory to us sometimes in our darkest Listen, this once grieving mother experienced the glory of Jesus. Listen, not at a synagogue, but at a funeral. She experienced the greatness and the glory of Jesus, not in the synagogue, but at a funeral. And sometimes, listen, sometimes we meet Jesus in the most powerful and unexpected ways outside of Sunday mornings, in the darkest moments when sin and suffering wage war on our souls. If that's you this morning, you are just walking through a dark moment, a dark season. Can I just encourage you to have eyes to see and a sense of expectation that, that Jesus wants to reveal himself to you in ways you could never imagine. And though the pain may be great and the sorrow may feel like it is a torrent that just continues to just rain down on you, Jesus wants to reveal His glory to you in ways you may have never expected or could have ever imagined. Do you recall what Jesus proclaimed about His identity and His ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth? Remember back in chapter 4 when Jesus arrives at his home, hometown and this is kind of the, the beginning of his public ministry. This is his moment to say, here's, here's who I am and here's why I've come. And listen to what Jesus does. After arriving there in the synagogue in his hometown, it says the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, take comfort in those words. Did you hear what Jesus just said? Jesus just said he came to help those in difficult places with difficult situations. He didn't say, hey, I just came for those who have their act all together. 
I came for those who are righteous and religious and have great church attendance. No, I came for the broken and the strung out and the addicted. And those who can't help themselves. They've been through recovery so many times. They've messed up so many relationships along the the way because of their sin and their brokenness. I came for them. He came for us in our difficult places and in our difficult situation. And it's important that we keep these words in mind from chapter 4 that I just read as we reflect now on the response of the crowd. We, we just saw the way in which Jesus responded to this grieving mother. Now, now let's consider how the crowd responded to Jesus after experiencing this miracle. And we're told by Luke, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Now, as you can imagine, experiencing the the kind of event they just saw unfold before their eyes, this would have had a profound effect on all those who observed it. Nobody saw this funeral procession and all of the grief that was associated, and only a few minutes later, the grief turning to glory, and everybody just said, oh, okay, that was neat. That's interesting. Everyone who saw it was moved by it. If you will, put yourself there. You've have made your way to the, to the funeral procession. Heartbroken. This woman who already lost her son has now, her already lost her husband has now lost her son. And you... You are just grieving. And all of a sudden, this crowd comes up. And this man you've never met, he's not glowing like an angel, just looks like a normal man. He comes up and he touches this body and says, rise. And he gets up. And he says, go to your mother. And there's this reunion. All of a sudden, The sorrow turns to awe. The grief turns to praise. Think about it. Emotions were running high after the widow's son was raised and restored to life. This passage doesn't just begin with a lot of high-intensity emotion. It ends there. But now the emotions are, are running in a different direction and for a different reason. See, this miracle that occurred could only have happened if God made it take place. And because the people were aware this this isn't just something that anybody else could do, you know what the people do? They gave God the glory. And it says that after seeing this miracle, here's what the people say. They say, a prophet, a great prophet has risen among us and that God has visited his people. Now that last phrase, we, we probably just say, yeah, man, they're right on. But what, 
why do they say a great prophet has risen among them? Well, for two reasons. First of all, Jesus was known, as we've talked about in the weeks leading up to today, Jesus was known as a preacher who was proclaiming a message about the kingdom of God. We've seen how time and time again throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is seen as a herald, as one who is proclaiming. That's what it means that he's a prophet. He's speaking the very words of God. And if you remember back from that story I read when Jesus was in Nazareth, And he went to the synagogue and he read from Isaiah's scroll and then he sat down and said, upon you hearing this, this passage has been fulfilled. Everybody doesn't get it. They don't say, well, now we see they reject him and listen to what Jesus said in verse 24. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus just called himself a prophet. So there's something here about Jesus's ministry of proclamation. But then that raises the question, okay, so Jesus is functioning with this prophet, prophetic role of proclaiming the message of the kingdom. Why call him a prophet when all he did in this story was heal someone? I mean, you can understand why they'd call him a prophet after hearing the the sermon we just spent four weeks reflecting on from chapter six. I mean, call him a prophet then, but he didn't say anything profound. He just healed this guy. He brought him back to life. Why call him a prophet? That brings the second reason that they call him a prophet. Jesus is repeatedly in Luke's gospel compared to the prophet Elijah and Elisha. And if you think back to the Old Testament, these two prophets were unique because they were given the ability to do miracles. They were given the ability to do miracles. And we know that this must be the, the undertone of what they say for several reasons. First of all, go back to Luke chapter 4 and what happened when Jesus was there in his hometown and they rejected him. I just read verse 24. Listen to what Jesus said in verses 25 and 26. He says, but in truth I tell you, there will be many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Did you hear what Jesus just said? He's associating his ministry with the time of Elijah and Elisha. And that's not a coincidence here in this passage that all of these details are unfolding just like what we hear in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. In 1 Kings chapter 17, I'm not going to read the whole passage. If you recall, it's a famine. God is providing, there's a, yeah, there's this great drought. God is providing for this prophet named Elijah. He uses this widow from Zarephath and she provides for him. God meets him and yet, turn of events, her son dies. And Elijah goes and says, Lord, how could you let this happen? This this is the one woman who's shown faith and and she's shown mercy and she's taking care of me. Would Would you heal her? 
Or would you heal her son? And we're told that Elijah prayed. And then in verse 22 of 1 Kings 17, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he was revived. And Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and listened to this, and he delivered him to his mother. Do you know that the Old Testament that originally was written in Hebrew has a Greek version called the Septuagint? Do you know what the language of the Septuagint says here? It's the exact same language that he gave him to his mother. What he's doing here is exactly what Elijah did with the widow at Zarephath. That's why they're calling him a prophet, a great prophet. They're associating him with Elijah and Elisha. And we know that because later on in chapter 9, verse 19, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Verse 19, and they answer John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And others, that you're one of the prophets of old that has risen among us. Obviously, people hear the authoritative teaching of Jesus and they observe the power of Jesus and they say, okay, there's something about him. It's not just unique. It reminds us of what God was doing in the Old Testament. See, by calling Jesus a prophet who was like Elijah or like Elisha, the crowds were declaring that Jesus was a prophet who delivered the message about God's kingdom, and yet he authenticated the message with great signs of power. That's what made him a, a great prophet in that sense. He not only proclaimed about the kingdom, but God gave him the ability, like he gave Elijah and Elisha, to back up, to authenticate all that he said with these signs of power. However, even though the crowds saw Jesus as a prophet, they're only partially right. They're only seeing through a glass dimly. Therefore, many in the crowd miss what this moment of visitation from God meant. You remember what they said? God has visited us. But we must not hear this only as a, as a declaration of faith. They're saying some right things. Yes, Jesus is a great prophet, but he's more than that. And yes, God has visited his people. This is actually a theme throughout Luke's gospel. And the last time that Luke mentions that, that phrase, that God had visited his people, was when he weeps over Jerusalem. And he, he prophesies its destruction. And listen to what he says in verse 44. And they will not leave one stone upon another. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here are these people saying, the Lord has visited us. You're right. So what are you going to do about it? It's good to see that. But sadly, many people saw that. And yet, they did not respond appropriately. See, we must remember Luke, he wrote down this gospel account on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. 
And I think that informed how he wrote this entire gospel story, including this passage. And I believe that's why the, Luke inserts the word Lord at the beginning of verse 13. We can just move right past it, but I actually think it's in a very important word. Here's why. Because most commentators have made drawn attention to the fact that this is the first time in Luke's gospel that he himself has personally declared in the narrative that Jesus is Lord. He's repeated other people saying Jesus was Lord. But now this is the first time, and it won't be the last time, that, that Peter says in this very verse, in this very passage where other people are calling him a great prophet, he calls him Lord. See, when we, read in this when we read this passage in light of all of Luke and in light of all the book of Acts, we see that Jesus is more than a prophet. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose for our justification. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he continues to demonstrate his power through his people. Now that brings us to verse 17. In verse 17, we're confronted with the most important question of all. So far, we've reflected on Jesus' response to the grieving mother. We've reflected on how the crowd responded to the miracle Jesus performs. But now the spotlight's on us. How are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? Listen to how Luke ends this story. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. As you can imagine, this miracle caused the fame of Jesus to spread way beyond the gates of this little town. Have you ever considered this? Luke wasn't there. How did he know this story took place? Because in verse 17, we're told in this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. How do we know that this story that is, is preserved in Holy Scripture that we've benefited from today, we've been able to encounter the compassion and the glory of Jesus. How do we know this took place? Because someone Someone told Luke. Someone who was there told someone else who was there about what happened that day. And Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote it down in Holy Scripture. And what we're going to discover in the text we're going to look at next week is that this text not only connects to last week, it connects to this coming week. What we're going to discover is that as the reports about Jesus begin to spread, questions about his identity began to be raised. You would think the more his fame spread, that would solve all the problems. The more his fame spread, the more questions are raised and the more questions that have to be answered. See, this, the, the, the fame of Jesus spreading required greater explanation and clarification. And that was not only true then, it's been true throughout the history of the church. 
That's why for two weeks now, Pastor Odom has been leading us in a series through Sunday school on the creeds and the confessions of the church. Things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. The church has always had to wrestle with getting clarity about who Jesus was. See, what happened as we look at next week's story is that all these reports about Jesus required people to say, okay, well, wait, who is he again? How do we know? And the church has always had to do this. And here's one of the things we know about those creeds and confessions. Once you answer one question about Jesus, it raises more questions. And guess what? Now you need another counsel to say, okay, well, what do we do with that? But this morning, the biggest thing I want to draw our attention to is not just how is the church, the corporate church of Jesus Christ confessed what about him? What have they said about him? The, the, the greater question is, what is your personal profession? What do you think about Jesus? Who is he? And if someone was to stop you on the streets today, how would you describe him to him, to them? Listen, those two questions, who you think he is and how you would describe him to someone else, those two questions are central to our public witness as a church. They're at the core of our mission, getting Jesus right for ourselves and confessing who he is and being able to proclaim to others who he is. That's at the heart of what the church does. There's many other things we could be involved in, but at the end of the day, we get that right or we get that wrong, we need to shut our doors. We get that right, we may not be able to do everything we'd like to do in this town to reach people. We may not be able to influence, you know, all the, the, the cultural things we'd want to influence, but we get that right. And we're on the right path. So we must reflect on in the days ahead as Luke's gospel will continue to press us, who is this Jesus to you? Who is he to me? And who is he to other people when we talk to them? Next week, we will spend more time reflecting on the identity of Jesus. But from now, let me turn our attention to the Lord's table. Because we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table together. Once a month on the first Sunday of the month, we, we come and we take of the bread and we take of the cup together. And it's a privilege to get to eat of this bread and drink of this cup. And it's meant to do something. It's meant to communicate something. I, and I think what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, clearly, succinctly lays out what we're about to do as God's people when we take of this bread and we drink of this cup. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, we read, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. And then listen to verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a moment, we are going to take of this bread that Jesus said we're to do in remembrance of him. It's to remind us that this bread is meant to remind us of his body. His body that was given as a sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. And when we come to this cup, it's to remind us of the blood Jesus spilled so that you and I will never drink a drop of the wrath of God. We will drink of the blessings of the new covenant for eternity. And think about what we're called to do according to verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know what we're doing when we take of this bread and drinking of this cup? We are proclaiming something. We are proclaiming something. In the same way that baptism is a declaration that Jesus died for my sins, And Jesus Christ is my Savior. That's what we're doing when we take of this bread and we drink of this cup. We are making a declaration. We're proclaiming something this morning. So as you come to this table, let us not forget what we're doing. We're making a loud proclamation, a clear declaration. This is who Jesus is. And did you hear what we're proclaiming? We're proclaiming his death. And it says we're to do this until he returns, which assumes his resurrection. Because if he's dead and he's returning, he must be alive. So when we come to this table, you know what we're doing? When we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we're saying Jesus died. He was buried. He was raised. And he's coming back for me. But not only are we proclaiming something and declaring something from, with this bread and this cup, we're celebrating something. Sometimes there, there are appropriate ways and different ways to come to the table of the Lord. There are times we need to be reflective. We need to really evaluate ourselves. There's times that we may need to stop and really have a sense of, do I understand this? But often we can come to the table with, with somberness. We ought to come to the table celebrating. This, this is that we're about to do, church, this is an act. As much as we just sang a minute ago, we lifted our voices and we sang about who Christ is and what he's done for us. That's what we're about to do when we take of this bread and we drink of this cup. We're worshiping. We're worshiping. So this morning, if you're here and you have made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ through baptism, we, we, we want to invite you to this table. We want to invite you to this table to come and to worship this Savior through the bread and the cup. If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ and made a public declaration of your faith, here's what we're inviting you to, not this table, but to Jesus. We're inviting you to something far greater than this table. This table represents something. 
It's meant to symbolize who Jesus is. And this morning, we want to invite you, if you've not done that, to see today is the day to come to Jesus so He can give you new life, forgive you of your sins, and be your Lord and Savior. So church, let us now pray together for this time, and I'll give us some further instructions as we take the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. We follow in the example of the Savior, who it says, after giving thanks, he broke the bread. Lord, we give you thanks for this, this wonderful reminder to us this bread is meant to point us to your sacrificial death and this cup that's meant to point us not only to your sacrificial death but to the benefit we get of enjoying the new covenant. Thank you for this time. Thank you that this morning we as your people get to do this together. May you be glorified in it. May you see this as an act of our worship and our declaring great things about you. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who have never responded to you as their Lord and Savior, may today be the day. And may they come to you as, as their Savior. And may today be the day they call you Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.